Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we're joined by Tracy Melvin. Tracy's a student in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. Tracy, what do you study? Um, I study climate change ecology in Alaska. In other words, that means what is going on ecologically as it gets warmer and drier, or what is going on ecologically with indirect effects from warming and drying in people in Alaska. That sounds pretty broad. Could you elaborate a little bit more about what you're studying specifically? So I'm studying climate change ecology in Alaska, and specifically in Alaska because it's changing at like twice the rate as the lower 48. So things that we've kind of seen here, like um, we've seen some flooding events here in Michigan. There's some crazy snowstorms we see here in Michigan. Any sort of weather that is amplified, you may or may not be able to attribute to climate change. But in Alaska, it's right in your face. Just your regular everyday folks that live in Alaska where I work for my PhD research. If you talk about climate change, they're like, yep, it's happening. It's here. It's in my backyard. Some of these effects of climate change are really, really good for folks. Like, hey, I can grow an apple tree in my backyard and that's great because I live in Alaska and now I can have fresh fruit or my gardens are doing really great. Um, But ecologically, it can be really disastrous. And what makes it disastrous is because it's the rate of change that we really care about. And the rate of change is just unprecedented up there. And for example, what I study specifically is this really huge grassland in the center of this peninsula. So it's like 40 to 60,000 acres. It's huge. And it changed from an old growth spruce forest. Basically used to be a spruce forest for like since the last glaciation up there. So like maybe 10,000 years. And within 20 years, it just switched overnight to a grassland. And that's both directly and indirectly from climate change. For quick elaboration, when you say the 48, do you mean the 48 continental United States? And then secondly, you said how a spruce forest that was full of trees transformed into a grassland. Well, what happened to the trees then? So what I mean by the lower 48 is, yes, the lower uh, 48 contiguous states from Maine to California. So everything in the boreal region and northern um, parts of the Earth or the Arctic are changing quite rapidly compared to everywhere else. And the reason that spruce trees in the boreal region that I work in went away so quickly is directly from this natural forest disturber called the spruce bark beetle. It's this little tiny beetle, native, natural. It's about the size of a grain of rice. And every, you know, 30, 50 years, depending on the forest type, they'll come in and they will basically girdle or kill really large, older spruce trees. And that's natural. But because it got warmer and drier, it set up this chain reaction where this normal, natural beetle went crazy. So it's like on steroids, just in this epidemic proportion. And over the course of like 10 years, because of warmer and drier summers, they just went crazy and ate through a forest the size of New Jersey. That was the direct effect. All these trees died. There's some really cool books written about this called like Empire of the Beetle. And people there still remember being able to see these huge spruce bark beetle clouds. It's like this black cloud going up and over mountains, descending onto the trees, into the forest. They could hear them. So imagine a grain of rice, right? But there's like a billion of them eating trees around you. And you could actually hear them. So all these trees are dead. And you're like, okay, well, that's terrible. People freak out. First thing folks want to do is go in and salvage log, which means they want to 
um, harvest the wood before it goes bad so they can actually get some revenue out of it. So in some native areas or private land areas, even forest service areas or public lands, folks went in and harvested the trees, which is cool. But when you do that, and also when you lose all that foliage or uh, needles around the trees because they're dead, it opens up the forest floor. So the second chain reaction that happened is that sunlight came down and the grasses in that area just exploded. Also native grasses, right? So they're supposed to be there. They've been there forever. So you have these native grasses take off. You have people come in building roads to remove the trees. And then people are like, oh, this is a really great place to build a cabin because I have this wonderful view. And so people build cabins, which is cool. And then they do people things, which means they, you know, sharpen their shovels and do cabin stuff and accidentally start fires. So there was some fires started. And so indirectly, because it's warmer and drier, you have this grass in the spring, warm and dry with sparks. And so fires just broke out. And the landscape doesn't care if the fire is started by people or lightning or whatever. It's there. The fire's there. And so when you have fire in that landscape in the spring, it perpetuates or turns this trajectory towards a grassland rather than a forest. And that's what we're seeing in Alaska right now. That's crazy. Wow. It is crazy. I would be so scared if I saw a cloud of beetles just flying like that towards the forest. Yeah. I think people are and we're scared because it's just so fast. It's like, you know, locusts descending upon a field. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it sounds like a plague. Yeah. Did this happen this recent spring? Because I'm wondering, how did the winter affect this area, too? The wintertime is just like here in Michigan in Alaska. So you'll have a period of, you know, dormancy where all the grasses and the grassland species will die. And then in the springtime, again, it'll just come right back up, mostly grassland species. And the reason that this main grass species called blue joint reedgrass is a big deal is because it will crowd out other species. So you just end up having this big monoculture like you would see like in a grass or cornfield, but it's grass. And so very few things can get in there to survive other species. And so it turns into kind of like an ecological desert. So we're seeing totally different groups of species being able to live in this area and also um, a lot of, we call it depauperate. We believe it's depauperate, which means it's just not very rich in species. There are not a lot of species that are able to live there. To summarize what we've talked about throughout this episode so far, it sounds like you're studying what the effects of climate change are ecologically when it comes to this newly established grassland that's formed in one of the peninsulas there in Alaska. So this research is in like a a huge, larger, like philosophical context where we're looking at like the world basically falling apart Mm -hmm. ecologically. And how do you hold on to that when you see massive ecological transformation on a landscape? When you move into the future and you have less and less of a handhold on how you can keep that landscape healthy Right. And Alaska is such a great case study for that because folks are dealing with that right now. Um, So we call that the Anthropocene, which is uh, this big fancy word. I don't know if you've heard it before. And it basically sums up all of the ramifications of seven and a half billion people on planet Earth and what that means for nature. How are you studying the ecological effects in the first place, though? 
So we are focusing on two, two kind of core questions. And from those questions, um, we try to address uncertainty with what's happening on the peninsula. And we also kind of um, take these large philosophical trajectories from those questions as well. So the first question is, okay, if the peninsula is going to aforest, in other words, are, if trees are going to grow here, where would they grow and what kinds of trees would grow there? So if you're just looking out at a landscape and you're like, okay, how is this landscape going to change? You can do a bunch of like mathematical models and climate projections to say, well, the temperature envelope or the precipitation envelope or how much rain or um, sunlight or how much it's going to heat up. What is that going to look like in the future, even though we're uncertain about that? And then say, okay, well, what? Do we know about the trees that are already growing here? Can they grow in that kind of envelope? And then the other question is, for areas that are deforesting or trees are going away, what's there now, right? So if there's no trees growing in this area, what is going to grow there? And what is it going to look like? And how? And what affects that, right? So what are the processes that affect that? So those are our core questions. So to answer that, uh, we go and get data, and the data we get on the ground is to drill tree cores in a bunch of native and non-native trees on the peninsula. So we picked four major trees on the peninsula. We go in and we take like this little um, pencil core, right? So we just have a hand drill. We drill right into the tree. A lot of foresters do this. You take that little drill out, and inside of it, it's hollow. And so you have this little... It looks just like a pencil with tree rings on it. So we can get enough of those to say, okay, how are these tree rings changing over time? And are these trees showing a stress response from climate? So we go in and we pick certain spots where we say, okay, all of these trees are very similar in this similar area, but it's broad enough across the peninsula where we can get this larger picture of what's going on. We actually modeled uh, climate in three different subregions on the peninsula because it's so big. It's like six million acres. It's basically the, the size of half of lower Michigan. And we said, okay, we've got all these trees here. Let's core as many as we can. So we ended up coring like 700 trees. That's all we did in all summer for half of it. And then the second thing we do is we do rapid biodiversity plots in this grassland. So we go to the grassland, we get on ATVs, we strap a shotgun to our back because there's a lot of bears out there. And we um, take a sweep net and soil samples. Um, we take the sweep net and get above ground arthropods, so all of your insect species in these plots. And then we'll take a soil sample so we can look at what kind of fungi are growing in the soil to uh, inhibit or promote different species. And then we do a whole series of lists of all the plants that are growing there and then take an actual soil sample for what the soil looks like. So we can say, okay, here's what we have now, and here are all the gaps in that food web, this brand new novel ecosystem. Um, here's what we don't have, and here's what we might need. From those two questions, how are the trees doing, and what's here in this grassland, we can then start to get a little crazy, like scientifically. So we can start to say, here's what I have in this grassland, and here's what's missing. And if you know anything about grasslands, you know that they take a certain kind of biological envelope, like a certain precipitation type and a certain um, temperature type, but they also need disturbances. And so to have a grassland, you need fire. And you also need a functional grazer, which means an animal that goes around grazing, or else you get this monoculture. 
And that's basically what we're seeing there. So when I say get crazy as a scientist in my field, we start talking about, well, what would you do to manipulate this landscape to make it the best it could be biodiversity wise? And for us, we're putting together a set of filters for assisted migration of species up to this peninsula. So we say, okay, what could grow here? What could live here? And then what would work here ecologically? And then from that list, we say, okay, well, what in the future is going to do really bad where it's living now? And can the Kenai Peninsula act as a a refugia or a refuge for these species that might go extinct otherwise? And that's where we start to get really interesting, you know, is we're like, okay, no one else in the world that I know of is doing anything like that because it can be really outlandish. But when you start to really look into what the Anthropocene means in the sixth extinction, and we start talking about that seriously as scientists, then you start to really consider, should we let nature take its course or should we do something? And in what instances is that appropriate or not? What can you learn from the tree cores? For example, the tree rings can tell you about different stages of the life of that tree. Within the past recent decades where climate change has been more strongly observed, can you see differences with the outer part of the tree where it's showing more signs of more recent years? That is a fabulous question, yes. So you can definitely tell how old a tree is. Most folks learn that. Um, you know, you do fun stuff in science class and and see tree rings and are able to count them. Or if you come around a, a tree that's been cut down, you can count and see how old it is. Um, and yes, for sure, as a tree ages, the tree rings can get wider or um, narrower just based on how trees normally grow and by species. But yes, when you account for all of that and you account for where the tree's growing, we found that some of our trees are showing this growth signal after like the late 1960s where they start to really have a hard time. And what's really interesting is we're seeing decreases in growth in areas of the peninsula that are showing more drought. So we see um, wetlands and peatlands drying up at like these unprecedented rates on the peninsula. And the spruce trees in those areas are also showing this really big drought signal as well, or this really big decrease in growth as well. And that's a little bit less pronounced um, in other species. Like it's a little bit less pronounced in our birch species and a little bit less pronounced in our aspen species. But spruce are really showing a hard time. You recently mentioned grazers in the grasslands. Are there currently any grazers residing in the Kenai Peninsula? Actually, that's the reason why we have to apply this filtering framework and the reason why we think that the grassland there right now is what we would call depauperate. There are no native grazers on the Kenai Peninsula. There's browsers like caribou. You have like some doll sheep and you have mountain goats there. But you don't have anything that like goes through a grassland like this and serves as a functional grazer. And what's so important in functional grazers is that they really, they create diversity. And they create diversity just by being who they are. So they go around, they eat stuff, they eat stuff at different rates. They might stir up the soil, mix nutrients, bring nutrients around. And just by doing that, they can create a more diverse ecosystem, both structurally, right? So the things that are actually growing there and how big they are and where they're mowed down and also functionally. So what other things can live there because they live there. And so our filter really points to bringing in bison 
um, which is really interesting because there's no evidence of bison on the Kenai Peninsula ever living there, but um, there's evidence of bison's most recent ancestor living on there. So like the grandfather of plains bison and wood bison called steppe bison, there's been fossil evidence of steppe bison living on the peninsula. So at some point in the last glaciation, there were bison doing bison things there. It's really cool that bison used to be in Alaska. I really wonder what happened to them. But moving forward, it seems that you are all trying to integrate bison into that area in the future. How can the bison affect the area as a foundational grazer in that area? So again, we uh, when we talk about bison on the peninsula, people kind of throw their arms up and they get really nervous. Um, but we really try to put bison in the context of what it does for ecology and what it does for the landscape in terms of biodiversity. And so we like to emphasize bison more as a foundation species. And a foundation species is kind of like a keystone species, like beaver. You might have heard of beaver as being function or a keystone species. Uh, bison are kind of the same concept. In other words, they create and make a perpetual system. So a self-complexing self-perpetuating grassland. And they do that by wallowing. So they'll make these little wallow holes. They'll kind of graze apathetically. So they'll go around and, you know, they'll graze a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They really love the grass, the main dominant grass up there. So we think that by bringing in that foundational species, it can create a system that is stable, but very diverse. While this research has worldwide impacts, what motivated you personally to actually get into this research in the first place? What motivated me is that I love my program at MSU because it really is an applied research. I wanted to do something with my research that I know can affect large-scale conservation, whether it's just in the uh, vegetation type or habitat type that we study, or if it's just all about applying a philosophical framework for bringing landscapes into the future. And I also really wanted to work with um, the supervisory biologist in Alaska because he's at the cutting edge of thinking about all of this. And so we were able to do all of this really wonderful work together. This was my last field season up there. And I think everything that we're going to do is really going to have huge impacts just on how to think about climate adaptation in the context of the sixth extinction in the Anthropocene. And what is it like going out on these field trips in the first place out to Alaska since you've visited in the summer? I can imagine the weather must not be too cold. And tell us a little bit about your experiences. Well, the Kenai Peninsula is considered Alaska's playground. It's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. Um, I'm so lucky and fortunate to be able to go up there and get into areas that no one ever goes Um, We see tons of beautiful, amazing wildlife. I mean, you can see doll sheep and mountain goats at sea level. I don't think you can see them there anywhere else on planet Earth like that. Beautiful, gorgeous mountains. The grasslands that we work in are just filled in the summertime with fireweed, which is this beautiful pink plant like the as far as you can see, it just are these pink hills. And it's absolutely breathtaking. You know, you see wolverine, whales both kinds of bears. It's just spectacular. And if you ever want to go, let me know. I'll tell you where to go. (laughs) Well, it sounds like a gorgeous location. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Sci-Files on Exposure. Thanks for Jeremy Whiting, our general manager, Olivia Mitchell, our station manager, and our program directors, Amber Konitsky and George McNeil. 
Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on Sci-Files.